HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, made in harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Southern Peanut Growers, committed to making sustainable more attainable for chefs and cooking enthusiasts worldwide. I really am so excited to see like the looks that people bring to the dining room. Like I yeah. want, I really hope to see just some awesome, freaky, fun things that you would never see in another fine dining dining room. I want people to dress to the nines. I want to see some people in like full drag eating dinner. I want people to like truly let their freak flag fly in our dining room in whatever way that they see fit. The cliche of a restaurant trying to be a dinner party always gets thrown around. And when I envision, when I hear somebody's opening a restaurant that's an homage to dinner parties, I'm like, boring. That sounds boring. We want it to be like a house party, a dinner party in like the wackiest sense. Like when you show up a little too late to a party. The dinner party like six hours in. Yeah, the dinner party (laughs) six hours in when people have gotten really loose. That's like our aspirational vision that it's both luxurious, but like interactive and comfortable enough for people to really like lean into the space and make it their party. You just heard Camille Lindsley and Telly Justice, romantic partners and co-founders of Hags, the much-anticipated queer fine dining restaurant that's set to open in New York's East Village this summer. The couple envisions a dining experience where queerness leads and delicious, inventive food follows. This week on Meet in 3, we're celebrating pride by digging into the rich intersection between the queer community, food, and drink. Despite great stories in the legal rights arena and higher levels of social acceptance in the U.S., historic and continued discrimination means that LGBTQ individuals face challenges like increased risk of homelessness and hunger. In this episode, we explore these issues and how some organizations are working to combat them. But we've also stopped to take stock of some of the culinary spaces that have been and continue to be safe, joyful, and liberating for the queer community. I'm Dylan Hoyer, and this is Meet in 3. 
Meat and three. Meat and three. Meat and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. Sometimes all the rainbow celebrations can obscure the real issues that the queer community still faces. While sometimes invisible, food insecurity is a prevalent issue in the LGBTQ community. All is not bleak, though. Vaidehi Kudyati speaks to Lasiah Wade of Brave Space Alliance in Chicago, who is tackling the issue head on. In 2021, UCLA's Williams Institute published a study about food insufficiency in the LGBT community. The report found that 13% of LGBT adults did not have enough to eat during the pandemic. Further, LGBT people of color were three times more likely to face food insufficiency during the pandemic. And getting help is not as easy as one might think. I think people forget that queer people, LGBT people, are people that are in need as well. It's just not cishet people that are in need. Um, we need resources for ourselves. And I think that was the important piece around this pandemic in the beginning of the pandemic is what we've seen is like, how, who is going to feed our people? Most food banks or most uh, food places are ran by cishet people or churches or religious-based spaces where most of our LGBT community members do not feel comfortable in or turned away or have to silence their queerness or who they are to get the resources that they need. That was Lucia Wade, the founder and CEO of Brave Space Alliance. BSA is an organization solely run by Black and Brown trans people committed to improving the lives of the LGBTQ plus community in Chicago. And at the start of the pandemic, Lucia set out to create an inclusive space for her community to access food. BSA started our pantry at the beginning of the pandemic because me and my husband were sitting around and was like, who is going to feed our people? How are we going to make sure our people are taken care of? And when we say our people, we're talking about LGBT, Black and Brown, or even but just Black and Brown people as a whole. Inspired by mutual aid food access programs, Lasaya set up BSA's first food pantry. Operating primarily on donations from community members, BSA also receives money from foundations to improve access to food within the community. And the food pantry just caught like wildfire. People helping people. Um, it's, it's just the, the understanding, the basic knowledge of mutual aid work as a whole. Our food pantry is 75% mutual aid from people itself. We started with one, now we have five throughout Chicago. And we do delivery services every week on Wednesdays. Um, we service close to 2,000 people, fluctuating for 2,000 to 3,000 people a week. And, and, and it's a beautiful, I mean, beautiful thing to see that it continues to grow and continues to serve. Today, community members can access food and hygiene products at BSE's community pantry or have essentials delivered to them throughout the week for free. For some members, BSA's community pantry is where they get their daily meals. Equally important, community members can access these nutritious resources in a safe and culturally affirming space. Brave Space goes off of Brave Space agreements. It's important in understanding that you can come in as who you are 
We don't tell you to come in and, and be respectable. We don't do respectability politics on our end either. You're angry, we understand. You're sad, we understand. You're happy, we understand. And you have the right to all these fields in particular ways. But we're going to do our best to meet you where you're at. That's what Brave Space is. According to the Williams Report, affordability, lack of access to transportation, and safety concerns are some of the most common causes of food insecurity in the LGBT community. While tackling broad economic, social, and policy changes to improve access to food for the LGBT community will require legislative intervention, BSA's work is an important start. Food is not the only thing that the LGBTQ community lacks access to. Culinary schools' prohibitive price tags have been keeping them, among other marginalized groups, outside the door of professional food education. Alex Tran tells us about an initiative to open the gate. My name is Nicholas Panapinto, and I'm the culinary director here at the Los Angeles LGBT Center. Um, I oversee our culinary arts training program, as well as our social enterprise, which includes meal production, catering, and our cafe, Liberation Coffee House. Mick has helped lead the program since its beginning in 2019, and helps students serve over 74,000 meals per year. The student-run cafe and culinary school was designed to give homeless members of the LGBTQ community a career path along with the chance to serve other homeless youth as well as the center's senior clients. In terms of all the components of our program, we have a 300-hour culinary arts training program where we almost refer to it as, as a culinary boot camp. Um, the program is completely tuition-free for our students, and most of them, if they qualify, actually receive a stipend while they're in the program as well. We give them everything they need from their uniform to their knife kits. So anyone that's paid for a culinary school education knows what a value that is. The program starts with kind of a the culinary boot camp piece, which is really about all the basic skills they need to be successful in the kitchen. So that's the first 100 hours. And so that starts with basic knife skills from you know, how do you hold the knife to classic French knife cuts to basic sanitation, and then it advances really quickly. So within the first couple of days, they're making the mother sauces, they're doing egg cookery, they're doing doughs and custards, how to break down a chicken. We really try to expose them to everything that they might see in the kitchen. And then during the, the second 100 hours, um, our students practice and refine these skills where they actually cook meals for our members of the center that we mentioned earlier. We make about 425 meals a day. And then during the third part of the program, we actually place them on internships with local businesses where they have the opportunity to practice these skills, to build their resume, and to get experience in the kitchen outside of the center. Within the last three years, the program has enrolled 141 students and now has a capacity for 85 per year. Everyone comes to the interview and they're really nervous because they think this is, we're expecting them to come with all this experience and knowledge. And we immediately try to disarm them at the beginning of the interview because what we talk about is that all we're interviewing for is their passion for food. <laughs> and that's all we want to see because what we say is we can train anything else, you know, how to hold a knife, how to clean, how to sear, how, whatever cooking technique, but we can't train you to be passionate about food. 
This passion for food is a crucial element in uniting the LGBTQ plus community at the center. The culinary program started when the Los Angeles LGBT Center went under a really exciting expansion when we opened our new Nita May Rosenstein campus in 2019. And our campus is an intergenerational campus, so we have youth and senior programs as well as housing on a single campus. And there was kind of a decision when the center was built about how do we help to unite these two different communities. I think it's it's amazing because it it just I think instantly lowers everyone's guard when you're talking about about food. And all of a sudden, they're sharing stories about their grandmother's favorite recipe or what the smell reminds them of. And everyone's exchanging recipes and stories and, and everyone's defenses really come down. We had a senior who had just transitioned and we had a youth who was just starting to transition as well. And they actually were able to mentor each other. And, you know, there's only so much that a youth might be willing to come out to their instructor about or talk about their feelings. But the youth actually felt really comfortable talking to the senior who was just going through the same thing. In addition to connecting the many generation at the center, the programs aim to connect the Los Angeles LGBTQ plus community as a whole. We're really excited to have the Liberation Coffee House because we're one of the few LGBT cafes that are left in the city. And so I think it's really great, especially for those who don't want a bar atmosphere, to have a place where they can still socialize. Just a beautiful and welcoming space. And it it's I can't tell you how much we enjoy seeing customers come in and smile just by the color palette. We're excited that we were really able to create a welcoming space for the community. One of the things that we're really proud about for Liberation Coffee House is that, you know, we really want to make a strong statement that just because we were a social enterprise and we have a nonprofit component that we still wanted to offer the best quality product that we could. So for example, we serve Verve coffee, which is very responsibly sourced um, and delicious. We have expertly trained baristas. Uh, we bake a lot of our own baked goods um, in-house. And in addition, we also work with Bakers Needed, which is a wonderful bakery um, that uses a lot of locally sourced California ingredients in their baked goods as well. And then we also make great sandwiches and salads as well. And this month, in honor of Pride, they have prepared some extra special treats. Right now, you can get our wonderful Pride Blondie, which is a rainbow-covered white chocolate brownie, which is quite delicious. Um, you know, that's just one of the things we do to celebrate it in a fun way in the cafe. But the center does tons of events throughout the month. Our biggest event is AIDS Life Cycle, which is actually on track to raise nearly $18 million this year. It's, it's a, a group bicycle ride from San Francisco to Los Angeles. They're actually on the route right now. They'll be arriving here uh, this Saturday. We participate in a lot of the local West Hollywood and Los Angeles pride parades, as well as resource fairs and support programs throughout the city. From bike rides to baking, from youth to elders, initiatives like the LA LGBT Center Culinary Program have made a real impact in strengthening the community through food and cooking. And they're not alone on this path of change, with Chicago Center and Housey offering Silver Fork Culinary Arts and Job Readiness Program. Hopefully, these efforts are only the beginning to a new era of equal opportunities and access for the community. We'll be right back with more Meet in 3 after a brief break.
This episode is proudly supported by Southern Peanut Growers, who are spreading the word about peanut sustainability. As the planet's resources are strained to meet the nutritional needs of its populations, many responsible chefs are doing their part by sourcing local and sustainably raised food. Many are surprised to learn that peanuts are one of the most sustainable plant-based proteins available. Southern Peanut Growers created the campaign Making Sustainable More Attainable in partnership with award-winning chef Stephen Satterfield. Together, they're bringing the sustainability message to chefs nationwide, whether it's conserving water, minimizing fertilizers, or achieving zero waste, peanuts are a logical choice for your next menu. Southern Peanut Growers represent farmers across Georgia, Florida, Mississippi, and Alabama. For more information, visit www.peanutbutterlovers.com. I'm Chava Peribán, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Welcome back to Meet in 3. While BSA and the LA LGBT Center are working towards expanding access to food and the culinary profession, the gay bar scene is shrinking. And lesbian bars in particular have been hit hard. According to the Lesbian Bar Project, lesbian bars in the U.S. have dropped from a high of about 200 in the 80s to a mere 21 bars today. Sarah Mathis brings Meat and Three a slice of life from one of the three remaining lesbian bars in New York City. Lesbian bars have provided a safe space for queer women to dance, flirt, and be themselves for nearly 100 years. With the looming endangerment of these important institutions, I wanted to experience one myself. So I packed up my recorder and took the G train down to Park Slope, Brooklyn, to check out Ginger's, a lesbian bar that's been there for nearly 30 years. The only lesbian bar in Brooklyn, Ginger's is unassuming but welcoming. Bright yellow and orange paint make the name pop on an otherwise rather traditional-looking Irish neighborhood pub. Rainbow flags in the window announce its lesbian status to passersby. So in the world of New York, you have so many options. And I don't mean just like as a gay bar, as a, as a queer community, but there are so many options. And so like I like to seek a variety in my life. But when we're really in a particular mood to go be among a community that is accepting and we can be ourselves without having fear of retribution or retaliation of who we are, this has always been a safe space. 
That was Kristen Tafoya, my friend and Ginger's semi-regular. When Kristen and her girlfriend Kelsey heard I was going to check out Ginger's for the first time, they decided they'd come hang with me at one of their favorite places. When COVID-19 hit, many small businesses were affected, but lesbian bars, which have historically struggled, were even more imperiled. And the threat of their closure meant not just the disappearance of a beloved neighborhood haunt, but the evaporation of a safe space for the community they serve. I thought this place was closed. I mean, all through COVID, it, they had the, the scaffolding, and there's no information about whether it was closed or just shut down for a little bit. And it was absolutely devastating, I think, for me, because I, I love this place the most. Just because we can come here on a Sunday or a Saturday, and it's it's not so crowded, and we can be here and have a great time and like not feel concerned about being together or not included or anything like that so I really really appreciate this space for lack of better words we mourned this bar (laughs) but in fact Ginger's didn't close the owners updated it and reopened with force they used to have excessive trinkets above the bar, like uh, it was less clean, like less modern, like almost like a farting. Oh my about? goodness! <laughs> well, it was an Irish phone, Irish-owned bar, which I think it still is. But so remember they were, Irish, like, like, yeah. like, I don't know, they were old little ceramic houses or something. I, I don't know, but. I can speak to this a little bit. Irish knickknacks? There were like, I wouldn't even call it like specific to Irish knickknacks. I think the, I don't know whether they got sold or something happened there because there's different stuff since we've returned, but there were all sorts of like cuckoo clocks and like strange figurines that could have been toys. And none of them were distinctive enough to even for me to even remember because it was like a bunch of noise. But now it feels cleaner, slightly more modern in old digs, right? Um, that area over by the bar table is way they have new flooring. That stage never existed there before, and the pool table has gotten a revamp. They also built a whole back deck area, perfect for sitting out on warm summer evenings. One long-standing bartender told me that the reopening was a huge event, with people spilling outside. There were tons of young people, many of whom he didn't recognize as patrons before the pandemic, eager to support the bar. Kristen and Kelsey confirmed that the Ginger's crowd changed following the reopening. Well, I would say before COVID, we would come here and it was pretty much just lesbians, very specific. But then after COVID, it's been kind of pushing the boundaries a little bit before it wasn't perhaps it was just like couples or people seeking relationships etc maybe with a good friend here and there but now we're seeing larger groups of people for instance there was a whole softball team here celebrating post game today you could tell because they were in uniform and so it's also just a safe space once again but it was actually even talking about that softball group they had even a more inclusive group than I've ever seen before when I met up with Kristen and Kelsey at Ginger's on a Sunday evening around 6 every seat at the bar was taken there must have been at least 30 people there if not more all seemingly in their 20s and 30s to me that doesn't suggest a bar on the verge of dying out If anything, I think what I witnessed speaks to a great level of enthusiasm in the community. 
Is this a sign of a resurgence of lesbian bar culture in New York City? Maybe. Maybe we'll see all this enthusiasm translate into projects like the proposed opening of Dave's Lesbian Bar in Queens. But one thing's for sure, Ginger's is still alive and kicking. Now let's move away from the bar and take a seat at the table. Anna Canny brings us behind the scenes of a new queer culinary space at the forefront of fine dining. Chef Telly Justice and sommelier Camille Lindsley are opening a new restaurant, one that will lead with queerness first and cuisine second. Hags. Yes, that's the name of this revolutionary new venture, which will open in the East Village this summer. In their intimate space, which seats 20, Telly and Camille want to infuse a fine dining experience with the essence of a queer potluck. And though Telly promises an exquisite menu, she's also focused on the feelings her diners will feel while enjoying their meals. Feelings like safety, feelings like comfort, intimacy, softness, luxury, fun. Telly didn't always want to be a chef. But when she moved to Atlanta as a teenager, she found work in vegan kitchens, where a queer punk subculture thrived. Through food, she found community. And eventually, she found love, too. She and Camille met and began dating while working in a restaurant back in 2015. And that was my introduction to food. I really didn't think about it much growing up. Um, I didn't come from a culinary household, or I didn't have cooking skills as a teenager. This was not something that like felt initially like my place in the world. So building community first and learning to cook second, I think is very significant to both of us. Telly grew as a chef and bounced from restaurant to restaurant. Eventually, she landed in fine dining kitchens in New York City, where she rarely felt comfortable as a trans woman. Often, she was the only queer person in the room, With Hags, Telly hopes to create a new kind of fine dining space. It comes from a place of camp and reclamation, which are two like very necessary, uh, I think, aesthetic qualities of the queer community. We're taking something that is maligned, something that we've been excluded from, and we're reclaiming it and rebranding it as something that's for us. For Camille, The service of fine dining seems like the perfect place to start. On like a service kind of standpoint, fine dining is so theatrical. Mm -hmm. um, And I think that there is great potential for that to feel either theatrical in a stuffy way or theatrical in a really fun and exciting and new way. Yeah, Yeah. I think I think we're like, how would uh, the cast of Clueless behave if they were serving a fine dining meal how would i don't know like, like john waters Lee herman you know conduct service in a in a dining room and they'll take a similar approach to food telly's tasting menu will feature multiple courses in both vegan and omnivore options and whenever possible the dishes will be prepared with locally sourced ingredients How do we represent our relationship to this neighborhood, to our communities, to the people that we respect and love and want to support? Um, And all the while trying to make every dish very, very fun and representative of our like aesthetic values, like campiness, colorfulness, newness, trying to imagine new cuisines, new textures, new shapes. 
That newness and invention will draw on techniques that Telly learned in Michelin star kitchens, like the strange shapes and textures of the molecular gastronomy movement. Like the bubbles and the foams and like the weird sculptural foods. And I was like, this is hilarious. <laughs> like, the, this is so silly and whimsical. And like, if the people preparing the food weren't such horrible, mean-spirited people, we could have so much more fun with these things. So we're drawing a lot of those techniques back into our cuisine, which is like also feeling like a source of reclamation. Because Hags hasn't opened quite yet, the couple's vision for it is largely philosophical. What this queer restaurant will look like in practice remains to be seen. Telly and Camille are dreamers. And dreaming up hags, through its many different iterations and whimsical names, has been a hallmark of their six-and-a-half-year relationship. So the pair says it's surreal to finally share it with the world. But that's part of the restaurant's queerness, too. It's been a really, like, wonderful and uh, and sometimes strange process having, uh, you know, be on sort of the stage where we are sharing that deeply personal sort of thing that usually lives in our own inner worlds and like in the four world walls of our apartment, um, getting to share that with everybody else in New York City is really pretty wild. It's wild, <laughs> it's very vulnerable. And I think that that's a wonderful metaphor for queerness in and of itself, sharing this deeply personal vulnerable thing publicly and, and performatively and visually and physically and, uh, Hags is its own kind of queer element. For queer diners looking for comfort and celebration beyond the month of June, Hags offers a delicious meal and a warm embrace. We at HRN want to wish everyone listening a happy Pride Month. Thanks for celebrating with us. We hope you go forth informed and ready to eat and drink with equity and justice in mind. Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Vaidehi Kudyadi, Alex Tren, Anna Canny, and Sarah Mathis. Meet in Three is produced by Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Dylan Hoyer. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet in 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet in 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out.